0: There's not a single model that I've seen or expert that predicts that by 2050, that region of the world will be able to produce one single
1: chocolate bar. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. A few weeks ago, I attended one of the more interesting dinners of my life. Partly, it was the conversation, the venue was at the Council on Foreign Relations, but mostly, it was the menu. The dishes served were of ingredients that are going extinct. Sam Cass curated the menu for this Dinner of Extinction. He was the White House chef for the Obamas and now works at the intersection of climate sustainability and food systems. After being served this dinner of extinction, I was determined to bring Sam Cass on the podcast for a wide-ranging conversation about foods that are going extinct. We basically go down the menu and he discusses in detail the ways in which climate change is imperiling everything from snow crabs to the peaches he served atop the barata. To coffee and wine as you'll see from this conversation this is a really powerful way to connect the impact of climate change to our day-to-day lives and one thing that struck me about this conversation that certainly will impact you is how many of the ingredients we discussed are not going extinct in the far future but rather quite possibly in just the next few years anyway have a listen here is my conversation with Sam Cass. Can you explain where the idea of the Dinner of Extinction came from?
0: It came from a few places. The first one I did was back at COP15 in Paris and really started looking at what the science was saying climate change is going to do to many of the ingredients that we know and love. And also looking to try to figure out ways that we could make these issues more relevant and connect them more deeply to people working on this issue and people who aren't working on these issues. Because I think the environmental movement has failed miserably in connecting these issues to people's lives. And it's part of the reason why, for decades, we we couldn't really get voters voting on this and caring about it. It's now starting to change when we see fires and floods and hurricanes and the rest, droughts, sort of taking over. So it's becoming more visible. But, you know, the word climate change doesn't sound bad at all. Two degrees warming actually sounds pretty good, at least for a guy from Chicago. It's like, all right, two degrees, that doesn't sound so bad. So, you know, I think people don't really understand what those words mean, what's really at stake. And so this menu is designed to try to help people understand really what is at stake when we say these words and what does the future really look like?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, people have a relationship with food. Like certain foods are evocative of certain feelings and memories and emotions and climate change is like threatening something very fundamental about some of those relationships, which is, I think, an interesting way to put it.
0: Yeah. I mean, you start going down the list, which I can
1: I'd love to. So let's start with snow crab. I mean, talking about relationship with foods, I love all crustaceans and snow crabs in particular. That snow crab salad was absolutely delicious. But- it's something I suppose is likely threatened by warming ocean temperatures. Can you just kind of talk a little bit about snow crabs, which to me, I always kind of associate with New Year's Eve. It's a fun splurge. Yeah. What's going on with snow crabs?
0: Yeah, so our oceans are absorbing about a quarter of the carbon that we're releasing into the atmosphere. And that carbon is changing the pH level in our oceans. It's making our oceans more acidic. And that acidification makes it very difficult for shellfish and crustaceans. So you're talking not just crab, but lobster, shrimp, and all the shellfish, scallops, oysters, clams, mm-hmm. mussels, et cetera, makes the babies have a real tough time forming their shells. In addition, and you're right, the waters are also warming, and that's leading to lower oxygen levels in the water. There's actually like heat waves happening under the water. And the combination of that is having a devastating impact on these fisheries. So, for example, this past year, they had to close the snow crab fishery in the Pacific Northwest for the first time in history. In 2018, there was 11.7 billion crabs in the fishery. This last year, five years later, there was 1.9 billion crabs, which means we've lost about 80% of snow crabs. And scientists genuinely don't know whether there will be any left next year. Next year? Yes, next year. Wow. Yeah. You know, when I first started doing these dinners, it was really about what's going to be around for our kids and our grandkids. And now we're seeing some of these issues wreak havoc now. And certainly, you know, in our lifetimes, I think we're going to see some of these things play out that when I first started, I would have assumed my two sons would have seen in their lifetime.
1: So next on the menu was is- Burrata, and I should say, I live in like a mostly lactose free household. So whenever I see burrata on a menu, I run towards it. Why is burrata, which is, you know, a cheese, threatened with extinction?
0: The burrata itself is not threatened, although I think it was served with peaches yeah. or stone fruit. Stone fruit is really in trouble. I mean, dairy and animal protein are going to be also challenged, which you can get into, but that dish was to highlight stone fruit. Right now, what we're seeing is massive shifts in regional environmental systems and peaches in Georgia this year, we lost 95% of the crop. And as we enter a far more volatile climate, one that's warming up and drying out, we're seeing basically a migration north of plants and animals as well, but certainly plants. But if you're a peach orchard that's been in Georgia for a hundred years, like you just can't up and move north So we're going to start to see increasing collapses of stone fruit production, for sure, and a real upheaval in what is being grown where.
1: And that's already happening, you're saying? Yes. We're in the beginning
0: stages of that, for sure.
1: To your knowledge, are farms and and orchards, say, in Georgia, doing anything to try to mitigate that?
0: I mean, there's certain things like a really early and deep frost, after the trees have blossomed there's just not much to do although i think mean, people are working on technologies that are going to try to help and coverings and et cetera they're going to try to help protect those trees but you know i think certain issues around better management around water use and fertilizer to build more resilience in the soil more water retention to get through dry periods better inputs and management of trees and disease because obviously disease is spread. you know these warming climates more rapidly so I think there's some ways to really mitigate there. There's certain things that are going to be really hard to deal with no matter what.
1: So next on the menu is salmon. What's going on with salmon? I mean, presumably, I would imagine it's something similar to the snow crab situation. So
0: salmon face those same things around the warming waters, which is impacting them, but also impacting a lot of their feed. I think the thing to remember about shellfish and those stations is We're not the only ones who love to feast on them. There's a lot of actually much smaller zooplankton and much smaller animals that are getting also really impacted at the lower parts of the food chain that support this whole ecological system. So the impact of the acidification, the warming is having a devastating impact on what they eat, but they're also facing an additional challenge, which is, you know, as we know, salmon famously make their heroic voyages up rivers. spawn and the fry, the baby fish, and live in those rivers until they're big enough to come back down into the ocean. And that means they need free-flowing cold river water to survive. And our rivers are heating up really fast. And that's happening right now, which is already really decimating some of the salmon stocks in the Pacific Northwest. And the modeling for the snowpack, which is the source of those river flows, is dire in the coming decades. And by 2050, you're going to see you know, a dramatic decline in the amount of water coming from those snowpacks, which means that those fish really are unlikely to survive that journey. Yeah. So right now, the Alaska fishery is still in pretty good shape because you know it's still cold enough and there's still enough flow. But down in the Pacific Northwest, you're seeing some pretty dramatic fall-offs of the salmon stocks.
1: So with salmon, it's like a localized ecological catastrophe. Pacific Northwest is where it's in trouble. But Alaska and presumably also the Atlantic, it's in a less threat of extinction.
0: Yeah, but I mean, you know, we're in 2023, you know. So what you're seeing is the warming is increasing year over year. And so basically the temporal zone is moving north and south. And so as that pushes forward, you know, you're just not that many years away from this same dynamic starting to play out in Alaska. So it's just a matter of time right now, unless we dramatically change course, you know, the Arctic is seeing some of the fastest warming on the planet. We're not too far behind.
1: So after the salmon, you served a Boston cream pie, like the, the Boston cream pie is kind of in quotes. What was on that dish that you wanted to highlight?
0: Sadly, chocolate is... In some ways, maybe more than many other ingredients, really in trouble. Right now, basically, in all of the chocolate the world eats is grown within 10 degrees of the equator by smallholder growers. And there's not a single model that I've seen or expert that predicts that by 2050, that region of the world will be able to produce one single chocolate bar. It's just going to be way too dry and way too hot to support system sort of agriculture, which means that those trees are gonna to have to figure out how to walk. <laughs> but the disruption and upheaval that will come to those economies and those communities is really hard to overstate how dire it's gonna be for them. You know, and I think I could also take the time to also mention wheat, since there was also bread served, and wheat is you know is a good stand-in for this other big part. So We have these like big foods like chocolate. There's a couple more we should talk about, wine and coffee, but you know wheat and the big commodities like corn and soy are also facing rice, are facing pretty dire futures. So Wheat, for example, like spring wheat, for every one degree of warming, the models predict about a 7.5% decline in yields. That's on average, but by 2050, the models show that about 60% of wheat-growing regions will be in a drought condition. To give the context today, that's it's about 15%, which means that we're going to see overall, on average, declines, but we're going to see a lot more volatility and collapses, you know, in any given harvest of these big commodities. And these are the foundation of the global mm. diet, and it is going to produce hunger and malnutrition. Forced migration and political instability in a way that's like pretty hard to comprehend from this vantage point. We've seen little bits and pieces of the implications of of some of this in certain examples, Syria or shocks from the Ukraine crisis. But you know, this is a magnitude that we just haven't seen before. That I think is you know awaits us if we stay on the course we're on.
1: Yeah, you know, on this connection between you know dislocation, instability, and chocolate, you know, in particular, you know, as you noted, it's all pretty close to the equator. I've like visited smallholder chocolate farms in Ghana, and you know, these are not run by people who are economically secure most of the time; they, they're subsistence farmers. Yeah, and the idea that so many people who are already so vulnerable will sort of no longer be able to sustain themselves is really kind of frightening for already very kind of fragile countries and societies
0: that's right like many issues the most vulnerable today are going to be the ones hit hardest by climate and have the least capacity to manage the challenges that we face and i think When we look at our current food system and the you know, there's some real successes, but there's also some real failures of it in terms of hunger and malnutrition around the globe, you know, around the world, and certainly around health, all those metrics where we've made some meaningful progress and certain ones of them are really at risk. Like just maintaining the status quo, which I would say is simply not good enough, is gonna be really, really difficult going forward.
1: So I did want to talk about coffee and wine. You know, a couple of years ago, I did an episode on coffee extinction. I interviewed a scientist from Kew Gardens in the UK who studied this issue. And if I recall correctly, the issue was that wild coffee varieties were threatened to go extinct. And the sustainability of the two varieties of coffee that we consume, Arabica and Robusto, are dependent on, to a certain extent, their ability to kind of cross-pollinate with these wild varieties in order to survive climate change, et cetera. Does that sort of sound right to you, and is that about still the challenge?
0: I think that's a big piece of it. Right now, 75 of the 124 wild species of coffee is on the verge of extinction now. And the other real challenging part of this is that a lot of the genetics that, you know, scientists think we're gonna need to produce more resilient coffee production in the future lives in those wild species. And so loss of that genetic material is gonna make it much more difficult to find coffee that can adapt to this changing climate we find ourselves in. But what's happening now is, you know, great coffee is grown often sort of at the bases and mountainous regions and the valleys where it's you know, nice and cool and shaded, it is now getting too hot in those valleys to support coffee production. So growers are starting to plant their trees up the sides of mountains because it's cooler, but there's only so far up the mountain you can go. And there's some growers in certain parts, like in Hawaii, where they're already running out of room. And so the future of coffee is pretty dire. The, the IDB predicts that by 2050, over mm-hmm. 50% of the growing regions for coffee will be gone.
1: And on a similarly depressing note, wine as well is threatened. How is that?
0: Yeah, not, not dissimilar.
1: You know, wine
0: needs warm days, cool nights, and a very stable climate, and that's now changing pretty rapidly. In fact, Brunyar, which is one of the great champagne producers, their first production of champagne was in 1729. And they've been making champagne with the same grape in France for the last almost 300 years. And this year for the first time, literally for the first time, they had to produce a champagne that had a blend of various different grapes because they just have not been able to produce a consistent enough grape harvest with what they've been doing for the last 300 years because of those challenges in volatility in the climate. There's other growers in Champagne that have been buying land in England because they don't think they're gonna be able to make Champagne in Champagne. You know it's bad when growers in France feel like they gotta make their Champagne in England. So it's a pretty dire situation as well when it comes to wine. And for me, like I think everybody has what motivates them the most intensely. For me, it's really around wine and coffee.
1: One of the, I think, implications of your dinner and of your remarks just now is that for one, you know, as you said earlier, this is not something that's happening like, you know, far down the road. We're talking about like the next couple of years, We're going to see these profound changes in the ability to produce, you know, foods that we all love to eat. And to me, at least, that suggests that, like, in order to do something about it, we need to kind of take more maybe radical or or drastic actions than we've thus far been willing to take. So, as a chef, I'm curious to learn how you approach the idea of veganism. You know, I love every part of your meal. I'm not a vegan, but maybe I should aspire to be one considering the fact that if, you know, maybe I eat less meat or eat no meat, my kids will be able to enjoy, you know, stone crabs down the road. How do you sort of approach that tricky question as someone who, you know, obviously cooks with meat and I'm also, you know, a consumer?
0: I think we have to be asking ourselves how can we be a part of the solution wherever we find ourselves doing whatever it is we're doing. And, you know, what we eat is definitely a piece of that. So, you know, as a chef, I I really can never imagine myself being vegan. I'm definitely not a vegan, but I am actively working to eat less animal protein and the protein that I do try to make sure it's always pasture raised and I work to eat much more chicken than certainly steak. I don't eat much beef these days. And, you know, we'll have a pork chop that's from a wonderful regenerative farm that's insanely expensive, but, you know, try to do that only every so often. But I think that's one part of it. And so, you know, if you want to be a vegan or vegetarian, I think that's a great thing to do. I support it. If you want to have a little bit of meat now and again, I think that's also fine. But being conscious of those food choices and supporting companies that are actively trying to instill those kind of practices, I think is really important to shift the culture and the expectation in the industry about what we expect companies, both big and small, to be doing when it comes to regenerative agriculture and improving the system that produces our food. That's not enough in and of itself. Like The food industry, although it's a major driver of greenhouse gas emissions, number two globally, number one, use of fresh water, 70 percent of the world's fresh water goes into ag number one driver deforestation so like it is a major part of the problem but the problem is not just food and ag and so part of the problem is our politics so you know we need to vote we need to get active in the political process we need to make sure that we're holding people accountable for their climate change policies and voting them out if they're not like that's also a big part of it our businesses wherever you are in a school in a corporation, whatever it is, you know, working on what is the company doing, advocating for strong policies in the company level or your community organization about what we're doing to be part of the solution. I think we're at a place where it's going to take kind of every piece of the puzzle to meet the moment and make sure that our kids are going to be able to enjoy the bounty that we have. And I think, look, there's a lot of forces playing out, but we're making some real progress on a policy standpoint. And there's more to do, but we're seeing some real breakthroughs there, and got to give President Biden a lot of credit on that. You know, and, and in food and agriculture, I mean, the part that gets me very excited, and I'm a partner in an investment fund investing in climate change, environmental health, human health through food and ag systems, early stage companies, is what's really emerging is, is the realization that, particularly with some new pieces of technology, you know, food and agricultural systems, I believe, are really the only system on Earth that cannot. Just reduce its negative impact, but actually can sequester enough carbon to fundamentally shape the emissions level of the globe in the time horizon that the science says we have. And so, you know, right now, there, you know, there's 110 billion metric tons of carbon used to be in our agricultural soils that are now in the atmosphere. That's 80 years of our current footprint. And I think there's a huge opportunity to start basically paying farmers for regenerative practices that could really solve, you know, the world's most existential threat to life on earth and really shift how we're producing food at scale.
1: Is the idea of sort of paying farmers to do regenerative practices to do more to sequester carbon, is that like fundamentally like a policy issue that you think governments should get involved in? Or is it something that you think is more in the realm of the private sector?
0: The answer is absolutely both. I think Right now there's a healthy and robust debate about the role of carbon markets and carbon offsets, which I think is, you know, good to have the debate because there have been a bunch of bullshit credits sold and plenty of greenwashing out there. And my environmental advocate community, who I love dearly and very close with, you know, are right to call people out on that. I do think though that carbon offset market is an absolute critical part of what is going to produce the change. There's gonna be a For a while, a bunch of unavoidable emissions. And, you know, we need to find the resources and capital to help pay for transitions of other industries. So, you know, I'm totally fine with big tech paying farmers hundreds of billions of dollars to create a at scale massive regenerative agricultural system. Like I'm up for that. And, you know, it should not take the pressure off of companies decarbonizing their own operations internally and we should hold everybody account and so ultimately we're going to have to put a price on carbon but i don't think that's happening in the near term so i do think there are roles for the private sector for sure i think it's largely going to be driven from the private sector but what we do need government to do is set some clear rules of the road some standards on how these things need to be measured standards on additionality meaning like are we actually taking out carbon and i do think that's where this becomes Less in the gray. I think the gray and the controversy has been much more around like let's protect this forest that may or may not have been cut down. And really, what has been the benefit versus like we just took this ton of carbon out of the air, we trapped it somewhere like in the soil or in concrete. I can measure it and verify it. But I think that's a different ball game, and it's a really important part of how we're going to decarbonize at the rate that we need for the next say ten years
1: uh well sam thank you so much for your time this was really interesting it was a great dinner just like a a very interesting dinner as well so thank you thanks so much thanks for listening to global dispatches the show is produced by me mark leon goldberg it is edited and mixed by levi sharp If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.